0: Joy can override the worries and depression. Here are your hosts, Carmen Nazario and Josh Carter. Hey everybody, welcome. You are listening to the Veteran Founder Podcast right here on the Startup Radio Network. It is Friday, it is 1 p.m., excited to have you here. If you are unfamiliar with the show, well, welcome. Uh, every week, we bring in these remarkable founders that just happen to have something extra on their resume and that is service to our country. This week is no exception. We have an amazing founder, entrepreneur, Shannon Scott. She is the founding president of United Equality Consulting. Welcome to the program, Shannon.
1: Thank you, Josh. It's great to be here.
0: Super excited to have you on. Uh, I know you have some time in the Air Force, and we're going to cover that right away. But I definitely think we're going to spend a lot of time, uh, given the given your what you do and the current climate. But first of all, let's talk a little bit of the story of Shannon. What was the sort of thing that led you into the military and why the Air Force?
1: Oh, that's a great question. I I grew up in uh, outside a small town in central Montana called Great Falls, and I kind of grew up out there in rural Montana and you know. Growing up uh, working on a ranch, you know, and we did all the things that you would expect anybody working on a ranch to do. We, you know, bucked hay bales, we rode horses, we branded cattle, all that kind of thing. So that was basically my childhood and young adulthood growing up. And then as, as I was going through high school, I was looking at what I wanted to do with the rest of my life, or at least, at very least, which direction I wanted to head in. My uncle was already serving in the Air Force, Air National Guard in Montana. And my grandpa had served in the military as well. And so I was considering that one of my options. We didn't have, uh, my family didn't have enough money to cover the cost of going directly into college. So I would have been looking at uh, some student debt or some other means of trying to pay for that. And so with, uh, with the combination of the service history and my family, And my desire to make a meaningful difference in this world, I thought that it would be uh, something to, at very least, look into. And so I did that. I started contacting recruiters uh, in all the branches and uh, took the ASVAB in high school. And for folks that don't know what that is, it's basically the military aptitude test to kind of see where you'd best fit. And I scored really well in all of the areas, but highest... And math, electronics, kind of the, the technical side of things. And so I thought, well, that sounds good. I enjoy that kind of stuff. I always did. Uh, in my childhood, I enjoyed taking electronics apart, putting them back together, sometimes successfully, sometimes not. And, and so I, I looked at the Air Force and contacted some recruiters there and I ended up joining uh, the Montana Air National Guard, uh, part of the branch of the Air Force, and went off to basic military training Right after high school, when everybody else was off on their senior trips or the, the senior kegger or whatever, whatever it might have been. A couple of days after I was in San Antonio, Texas, going through basic military training.
0: Very similar story. I, I did the same thing I, right out of high school. I went right in the Navy and I was in Great Lakes, Illinois, which in my world felt like a world away because I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area and going from, Sort of San Francisco Bay Area into Illinois, which was completely flat and, and seemed like a world away. But for you, you grew up in this rural area going into San Antonio. What was that experience like meeting all these people from all different places of the country and getting exposure to, to cultures maybe you didn't have before?
1: I will say that it was incredible. That's I, you know, There's a lot of good things that I could say about the military, but um, one of them is the people you meet and the diversity that you experience. And so I made some new friends that, you know, folks that I had never even met before. You know, I grew up in rural, predominantly white Montana. And as far as racial diversity goes, it was, you know, uh, indigenous folks were about all the All the folks that I really got to know well, maybe one or two exceptions in there, but um, getting to meet people of all walks of life and uh, you know, all backgrounds and all races and ethnic backgrounds it was really it was really wonderful to uh to have that i don't want to call it an education because it's you know but it was definitely a really great growth experience,
0: yeah. Yeah, I I agree. I think, you know, and and the military has proven this time and time again, they're the most diverse employer in the country. And, and you see that immediately when you walk into boot camp, what, uh, so you got into, uh, I think you said avionics technician, right? What was that experience? Like, like, this is now you're working on airplanes. Like, what, what was, uh, what was surprising for you about that journey?
1: Well, shortly after coming back from uh, basic training and technical training, I was able to get on full-time with the Air National Guard. I served full-time in my capacity throughout my career. So um, I got to go to work every single day and work on F-16s and F-15s and, of course, securing a pretty high security clearance to do that. And I, I loved it. It was so rewarding, not only on the level that I knew I was you know, serving my country and, and doing that. But on the other level, I loved the technical aspect of it, uh, the troubleshooting and having that you know, knowledge of these highly complex avionic systems, whether it's you know, fire control, radar, navigation or flight controls. It was, it was incredibly challenging and at the same time incredibly rewarding
0: that's awesome one of the things that um, you know you're very very par- much part of a veteran community but you're part of another community and I want to talk about your experience in the military and and that piece of it you're transgender and you you have this amazing career of speaking about being transgender being part of this community uh, and and the education part of it a lot of us don't understand what that experience is like in the military because it's so It's so binary, right? There's just, you know, male Uh or female, really, in the military. What was that process? What was that experience for you like in the military, being a member of the transgender community?
1: Yeah. So I'm going to back up just a little bit to kind of give you a a little bit of um, pre story, so to speak, before we jump right into that. I had been struggling with my gender identity. Uh, ever since I was a very young child, and growing up in Montana, where you know where I was I was <laughs> I was working with you know Copenhagen dipping Coors Light drinking pickup <laughs> pick truck driving real live cowboys and like you know this the group of people that I was spending my time with weren't the most open minded folks. And so I learned at a very young age that it wasn't okay to show what I consider to be the softer side of me, you know, the more sympathetic, empathetic, kinder side of me You had to be pretty, pretty thick skinned, pretty tough. So I learned that that wasn't okay to, to, to show folks. And I, I hid that pretty well for a long time. And I fought it. And I was confused about it. I'm like, what is this about me? I think, well, maybe I'm gay. And I thought, okay, well, that's okay. And I kind of came to peace with that. I'm like, well, I'm not, that's not it though, because I wasn't, you know, I, at the time I wasn't super attracted to guys. It just, I just didn't seem to fit. And I had, growing up, I had never heard the word transgender. I mm-hmm. had never heard anything around that. I didn't even know it existed, I didn't know it was a thing and then one time on vacation uh, i was walking down the street with my folks and this beautiful super tall black woman is walking towards us and i was and she walks by and i say something to the effect of like wow she was fantastic like and then in in so many <laughs> maybe undelicate words my folks explained to me what was going on there and it was a transgender woman and i thought wait what and my head just went <laughs> I, a it thing? I was like <laughs> and then all of a sudden i knew i knew what i was dealing with my entire life and this was during high school and you know as i said i was raised catholic and uh, you know it's not okay to be gay or lgbtq trans queer lesbian you name it and i was uh, i was a pretty devout catholic and so i really started to um fight it even more you know, I went to therapist after therapist, not to come to terms with it, but to fight it. I said, we got to fix this. I don't want this. I started seeing how the world treated folks like me. And I said, that's not a life I want. I don't think that that's a life that anybody wants to be treated in the ways that, uh, you know, trans folks, especially, and especially trans folks of color are treated in this world. And so I fought it for years. And, uh, Every single therapist took it on and said, yep, we can do this. Let's do it. And then, you know, several months or a year later, they'd say, "Uh, yeah, no, this is just who you are. And I'd say, nope, unacceptable. And I went on the next one until I I finally came to terms with it. And by the time I had come to terms with it, I had already been through basic military training and been working full time uh, for several years. And so I started seeing a therapist that um, would help me come to terms with it because I just couldn't, I, you know, I couldn't lie anymore. I couldn't live mm-hmm. my life walking around pretending to be somebody I wasn't. And, um, and I did that, and she helped me get there, and it took a long time, and I eventually started to transition by taking uh, hormone blockers, testosterone blockers, and then later on starting with estrogen and hormone replacement therapy. And I did this all in secret because I knew that if it was found out, I would likely be thrown out of the military, dishonorably discharged. And as I went on with my transition, um, in hiding still, I, I started feeling amazing. Like, the the constant weight on my shoulders, that constant white noise in my mind, that was the burden of discomfort that I could never explain but just had grown accustomed to, went away. And at that point, I knew, I knew for sure that... Um, this was something that I wanted to do. And um, it was interesting. I made the decision, it uh, was on one of the final trips back uh, from Iraq. We were loading up onto into the C130 walking up the back of the ramp and going you know going down the, the cargo plane and of course you know anybody who, ever, who has ever flown on military transport knows exactly what that's like. You've got the two long rows of web seating, and then yep. the middle of the plane is of course filled with whatever it needs to be filled with, whether it was you know giant connexes filled with who knew, knows what, jet engines, missile canisters, you, you know, you never really knew until you got on the plane what was going to be on there. And so I got on, and we took off, and as we left the, the AOR, the Area of Responsibility, I, and we leveled out from our combat ascent, I, I was looking at these containers in front of me, and they didn't they didn't look like anything I'd ever seen before. And so once we reached, you know, our cruising altitude, I beckoned to the loadmaster, and I came over here. And over the, you know, the roar of the propellers, I shouted at him. I was like, "What is in these containers?" And and he looked back at me and he said, "HR." And I didn't know what that. I was like, "HR? Well, you know, what's HR?" And
0: oh. it dawned on me
1: shortly after that it was human remains. Right. And so I I spent the rest of that flight back to the United States, you know, looking at, you know, staring at these people that had given the ultimate. Impact you know the plane was full full of these canisters and I. wow I, you know and i was having this experience you know which i later uh learned was um, survivor's remorse and i was like why did these people you know die while i got to live you know why did the rpg fall you know two steps behind me but not her why did the you know why did the mortar land on his bunk when he was sleeping and not mine and it was at that point that I realized just how short and fragile and important life is. And so I decided that I was at that point that I wasn't going to die, you know, having not lived my most authentic life. And I started to, uh, to, to transition even a little bit more, um, not in any way that would violate dress code or dress and appearance standards in the military. But I was you know, growing my nails out a little bit more and um, just being a little bit more effeminate in, in a way that felt natural to me. And of course people were giving me a super hard time at work, which made it tough. And uh but I was for the most part presenting masculine at work and then on the weekends and time off I would live more authentically in my feminine self and and then one weekend uh somebody saw me out. And by the time yeah, by the time I came into work on Monday, my uh my supervisor called me into his office and I knew, you know. I knew exactly what he wanted to talk about. Yeah, and he sat me down, and he had two pieces of paper in front of him. One was a copy of the UCMJ, the United States Code of Military Justice, the section that talks about being transgender, or as I think it was written in that time, transsexual. And uh, the other was a copy of my dishonorable discharge signed by the base commander. And oh my god. And my world just came collapsing down. You know, I had nearly 12 years of honorable service. You know, I served, uh, served in the honor guard. You know, I was a meritorious service medal recipient, uh, accommodation medal. I was highly decorated in and in a high performer. And what I, what I thought was a valued member of, of my team. And so that was, that was really heartbreaking. And um, he said, you have two options. You can sign this dishonorable discharge and you know, go on about your life or you can hide it and keep it off base, keep it quiet. And, you know, so that's, that's what I decided to do for, you know, over a year, uh, I was hiding who I knew I was, which, and once I had kind of came out to myself, so to speak, that's, that was a really painful thing to do. So I started struggling, but I was lucky enough to, uh, to find a job outside, of you know, outside the military. And, you know, a short time later I was in Portland, Oregon, Know, working with the Federal Aviation Administration and, and then eventually started the business, United Equality Consulting, so that other folks didn't have to go through what I had gone through.
0: What's fascinating about that, this part of the story is that you spend all this time going to see therapists, fighting whether or not this is who you really are. You finally come to terms, and towards the end of your military career, you have to go back and kind of hide who you've now accepted
1: who you are.
0: I mean, yeah, it must have been absolutely heartbreaking.
1: It was. It was definitely the darkest days of my life. I will say, uh, I was—you know—I started drinking more. You know, dealing. I hadn't uh, you know, dealing a little bit with PTSD, dealing with uh, you know this this terrible. It was hard enough to, to go as far as I had with my transition uh, personally, and, and to the incredible struggle that that was to then, you know have to hide it again and see my career falling apart in front of me because I'll be honest. I love, I loved serving in the military. Uh, I found it to be incredibly rewarding work, fulfilling work and, and purposeful work. You know, it, it felt, you know, there's something that happens, I think to folks when they, when they deploy and, you know, there's a real chance that they could die every single day is you, your, your lens of the world shifts a little bit. And there's something about that, that, Uh, I liked I enjoyed and so in addition to you know uh, loving my work I I loved how purposeful it was so those days were really tough and you know there was some real depression real depression during that time and you know even a even a brush with suicide not knowing what the right direction to go was so yeah heartbreaking is absolutely true and perhaps an understatement
0: how far do you think the military has come since then
1: (sighs) You know, from what I've seen, it kind of depends on what branch you're in, who your base commander is, uh, who the president is. Because, you know, when as one of President Obama's last uh, acts before leaving office, he lifted the transgender service ban. And I remember the day that that happened. It was on my birthday. And I just remember thinking, this is a fantastic birthday present. I would have liked it sooner. But, you know. Sure. Better late than never. And so when he lifted that ban, um, you know, I think a lot of people felt safe to come out, and they did come out. And a lot of base commanders were very supportive of, you know, their their soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines. Uh, because they, you know, they it's a very cohesive unit when, you know, you're going to war with somebody. You're serving our country together. Even if you don't go to war, it's like, hey, I got your back if you got mine. And, you know, I don't care about your gender, your race, your... Sexuality, as long as you know you can fire your rifle or turn your wrench or, you know, whatever it is your job is. So, um, I think that some people had real positive experiences, uh, but I also know that later on, when that ban was reversed, that a lot of people were dishonorably discharged after being told that it's safe to be who they are. You know, they could still honorably and proudly serve this country. Uh, you know, I know a lot of people were had the rug pulled out from underneath them. So, I think it varies uh, from base to base, from commander to commander, and even you know from unit to unit. So, uh, there's progress being made, but I certainly don't feel that uh, everybody is treated as they should be. And I'm, you know, I, was, I, I must say, I was very proud of the higher leadership in the United States military and their response to the reversal of the ban and how these, you know. Even even knowing who the commander in chief is, they said, we're going to we're going to have our people's back. So um, that felt amazing. That was inspiring. And I'm very proud to know that that they did that. that. Yeah, I will say,
0: you know, to your point, different branches dealt with this differently. And I, I commend the Air Force secretary. I think she was uh b- handled this better than the other branches and as a navy vet it's hard for me to admit that but uh but she did she did a great job at at at, uh, at the response and and I think the air force above all else have been wildly more progressive than the other branches I think they've been uh, far more innovative. And, and I think it's it's just a testament to the diversity of the team and, and just how amazing they, they are as a as a branch. And I always said, if I had to do over again, I probably would have picked the Air Force because you guys always had the best bases. I'll be honest, like you guys. I was, it's
1: true, it's true.
0: <laughs> I was in uh, I was stationed in Pascagoula, Mississippi, which is a city you drive through, you don't stop. But we were close to Keesler Air Force Base, which is a, a big training. And you guys had everything there. So we spent, I spent a lot of time at Keesler Air Force Base. It was a lot of fun, but, uh, but you know, we joke, but I mean, it's, you know, uh, what I will say is there's this thing that's sort of in direct conflict to what you're saying in some regards, where, uh, it's true that you, when you're part of a unit and you don't see color, you don't see sexuality, you don't see religion, you don't see background or anything like that. But then there's that downtime. You know what I'm talking about? That morale, welfare, you go out and have a few drinks with people and people break off to the groups that they feel more comfortable with. And that's when that maybe that that camaraderie doesn't happen all the time. Yeah. And I don't know how to change that piece of it, which I think is far more important in some ways, because we, we all spend like I was on a ship for six months as a really small ship, only 250 people on it as before they were allowing females to serve on these smaller ships. So you're you're out in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, and and it's really al, two hundred fifty alpha males, right? So to your point, until you're changing some of the ways and the culture of these commands, it's not fully going to get to the poise, place where we need it to be. Does that
1: make sense? Yeah, it does. And to speak to our, to your statement about you know the off time when people kind of break off into their own you know, cliques or whatever you want to call it, social groups, you know, I think that, I think that that's something worth having a discussion about because, you know, I, I think it ties very directly into what we're seeing a lot today with, um, you know, the call for perhaps people who, or white, white folks to, to educate themselves more about mm-hmm. other people's culture, to not just necessarily come into a situation and say, this is the way I've always known it to be. And this is the way you're going to act. And, and um, you know, understanding that those cultures are different, and that's a good thing. And mm-hmm. perhaps taking you know, the road of humility and, and saying, you know, hey, I'd love to, I'd love to be your friend. I'd love to learn about you and who you are. And um, yeah, but that's a step that we have to take, because I think to a great degree, any person of color is already taking that step when they when they. Are living in this country, or they're taking. Like I understand that I have to learn the culture of the people that I'm going to have to work with, and and that's something that I think that maybe we as white folks haven't. And you know, it's just. I think it's it's worth a discussion. It's worth the continued education and. But I, I do I do agree with you in saying that you know during that off time perhaps we weren't as cohesive. Yeah, and I think
0: part of the part of the discussion I, I was talking this uh, with this with my wife a few days ago with, is that the leaders in the organizations, different branches, need to look more like the the yes. Benetton ad of the enlisted, right? So I think once yes. you see more of the leaders that look like the enlisted group, I think you're gonna see far more progress being made.
1: I, I couldn't agree with you more. In fact, one of, one of the people I look up to most that was directly involved in my life for a long time was a retired Chief Master Sergeant. And he had retired from the Air Force And, gosh, he was in his 70s, I think. And he was working as a civilian instructor in one of my electronic principles classes. And he was a black man. And he instilled such great work ethic and humility in me. I remember because we were all so high, scored so highly on the ASVAT. We kind of had this, like, noses up mentality. And he really brought us down to earth. And, you know, he'd make us go out there and mop floors. He's like, you think you're a leader? How are you ever going to? Make sure someone's mopping the floor right if you haven't mopped the floor. And, you know, we were at first very, you know, uh, resistant to that. And you kind of grumbled under our breath a little bit about having to do that work when we were so, oh, so genius. <laughs> mm-hmm. so, and then I started thinking more about him and got to know him more. And he started telling us stories about, you know, he was 70 and this was in 2000, early 2000s. And so I thought about what the culture of all the branches were towards um, you know, people of different race. And I thought this man made it to the highest possible enlisted rank as a person of color. And that is, I think, something that speaks to just how extraordinary this person was. So, and, and to have him in that leadership role, I think really opened up my eyes, my classmates' eyes, and to see such a, an amazing, strong leader and especially given how how difficult it must have been for him, so I couldn't agree with you more when you say that we need more people in leadership roles like yeah. that.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think it's gonna it's gonna change the trajectory of of the culture of the of the different branches when we just see you know different diverse group of people in higher ranks, and it's getting there, but it's slow. It's a really slow progression because unlike the enlisted. The the uh, the officers, they stay in, in in service far longer. So as a result, it's going to take longer for that attrition and that cycle to happen. But I see it happening today and, and it makes me optimistic. Um, we're going to take a quick commercial break. We've been talking to Shannon Scott. We will be right back.
1: This hour of the Startup Radio Network is supported by Bridges to Change. They strive to have everyone leaving their organization with stable housing, social support, sustainable employment, education, access to health care, family engagement, and goals for the future. To get involved, donate, or to get help, make sure to visit www.bridgestochange.com.
0: And we're back. We're talking to Shannon Scott. She is the founding president of United Equality Consulting. We've been having a fascinating discussion about her mili- her time in the military. But I want to transition into your career. You know, When you got out of the military, obviously, uh, you did what a lot of founders don't, which is you started with your why. You knew exactly what you were going to be doing and why it was important to you. But talk about that first you know, sort of transitional role for you. What was that like?
1: Absolutely. So I was, uh, I'll, I'll just be straight honest with you. I was hurting over Mm -hmm. having to leave the United States military. Like I, like I had mentioned before, it was something that I, I loved doing and I didn't want to go. And that I felt that there had been a great injustice done, not only to me personally, but to the service and to the work that we were doing, because, you know, I was, I was, this isn't so humble, but I was good at what I did and I was happy to do it. and I was dedicated. And so I think that anytime you lose a service member like that, it's it's a detriment to the service as a whole. And and so I thought, I have to do something about this. I'm not just going to be a person, you know, that this happens to and I go on about my life and just have to deal with it. I am going to spend the rest of my life in one way or another making sure that other people that come after me do not have to suffer this, like I did, that they have a fair shot at all things um, inside the military or outside the military, you know, this discrimination that, that they're facing, uh, it isn't right, and it isn't good for, for our community, it isn't good for the individual, it isn't good for the service or the organization, the business, wherever it might be, so I felt that that was a really great and meaningful way to, to spend my time and spend my life.
0: It's, it's like I said, you, you, did, you I don't have to question your why. Right Like a lot of founders <laughs> they, they really struggle with that, but uh, but you, you I mean it's very clear. the human rights campaign you you're really strongly involved with that. How did you get involved with them and, and talk a little bit about that experience?
1: Yeah. So when I first moved to Portland, Oregon, I was—I don't think I had lived here for two weeks, and I was exploring downtown Portland and this amazing, what we call weird community. Our our, our city motto is "Keep it weird," and and it is, and it's absolutely wonderful. You, you know, you can be whoever you are here, and. No, you won't get those you know laughs, those you know, sideways glances, those even those assaults, you know that, that sometimes can happen. You're a lot safer here, although no place is hundred percent safe. This was a wonderful place and is a wonderful place for for folks like me to live. And I came across uh, somebody on the street with a clipboard on the corner, you know like it's not uncommon. and they said, have you heard of the human rights campaign?" And coming from Montana, I said, no, what's the human rights campaign? And they said, well, it's the nation's largest LGBTQ civil rights organization fighting for justice uh, for LGBTQ folks. And I said, well, that sounds like something I'd be interested in. And so I started donating like, you know, five or ten dollars a month. And then I started getting these emails and uh, eventually I got an invite to a big dinner here. There was a fundraiser for them and I went to it and i drank the kool-aid so to speak i like these are my people this organization is the it's you know it's huge it's one of the it's the largest in the world if not the world and definitely the largest in the united states and i said you know, this is where i want to fight and so i talked to who um, the individual who was leading the organization for oregon at the time and i said i want to do more and then i started volunteering and from there i joined the steering committee then went on to, to lead the steering committee, which I'm still doing now, and we serve all of Oregon and Southwest Washington, and eventually went on to serve nationally on the National Executive Committee on the National Board of Governors. So um, it's been an incredible, an incredible journey. Uh, I'm still still serving in those roles today, still find it incredibly necessary, incredibly rewarding, and uh, it's a lot of hard work, but it, it's good work.
0: That's amazing. What do you think uh, helped you within your military career to prepare you for some of the stuff that you're doing today? The Human Rights Campaign and the United Equality Consulting that you're doing. What do you think set you up for that?
1: Oh, hands down, you know, discipline, Uh, discipline, work ethic. Was was something that was instilled me in my childhood, and especially in the United States military. I think that's one of the things that um, I'm most grateful for is that discipline and work ethic that I left with, and as well yeah. as a certain level, you know, a certain feeling that I think lies within many of us um, to serve. And I wanted to continue to serve, and I found this to be a really great way to do that.
0: I think one of the things that bonds that binds veterans is that need for that community to happen. right? I sit on the board for a nonprofit that's helping veterans learn to code. and i it's because of that community, the camaraderie, the I, I just I think we all when we serve the military and we get out, we miss that that we're doing something greater than ourselves, and we want to get into something. That kind of aligns with not only our core values, but that camaraderie that we had in the military. And so I think that's what I took out of the military into my own service. And I have a quote on my Twitter that says, "If you don't have community as a, a path to success, rethink your stri- your strategy." And I think it's it's true. And and this is I love the human rights community. I'm such such a huge fan. I I I just think it's amazing. With the United Equality Consulting, what, talk a little bit about the formation of that, because you've been doing that since 2016. Who are your customers, and how do you identify the need there?
1: So I started United Equality Consulting in 2016. But before that, in 2013, 14 timeframe, I wanted to make sure that I could make... Um, try to make a living at this and while doing good work and doing well so I started trying to figure out ways to do that and I also really wanted to start speaking out about equality and so I joined Toastmasters and they are an an international speaking organization that helps um, speakers of all levels from you know beginner to professional to to learn to speak better publicly and I joined them and I was with them for several years and I started doing really well and I kind of found kind of found my uh, tools of the trade, so to speak. I, I knew that this was how I was going to make the change that I wanted to see in the world. And so I continued doing that and uh, went well and went on to lead, you know, the local club and became an area representative. Um, again, always like moving into leadership roles, no matter where I was, you know, I had great thanks to the military for having, you know, instilled those, those, that skill set within me. And so I started a little company called Shannon Scott Speaks. And it started kind of just dipping my toe in the water saying, is this something that I could really do? And so I started doing that and it really started to take off and people responded well. And as it grew, I knew that where I wanted to take it, I would have to rebrand. And so we rebranded into United Equality Consulting because I have dreams of making this larger than just myself, of, you know, making sure that we're bringing in Consultants and speakers to speak on topics of racial justice, or folks of different different abilities. That when we say equality and equity, that we mean it broadly speaking. You know, I, I think that especially recently, we all know that none of us are going to get there to get there alone. We need to unite and ensuring that we all are fighting for one another, so that every single person has that equality and that equity. So we rebranded into United Quality Consulting, and it was all word of mouth. You know, I just started doing little speaking gigs here, and little educational um, sets there, and people would say to, you know, their employer, their friend, their family member, hey, this was really good. You should should look into them. And so it continued to grow, and I started working with larger and larger organizations. You know, uh, I think some of the first large organizations I worked with was PWC, you know, standard insurance, I went on to work with um, some large uh, insurance companies across the country, and then even went on to do a little bit of work with eBay and and Nike. And, you know, and then I started to get more of a, a social media presence, so to speak, or an online presence. And I began being interviewed by all sorts of media outlets. Uh, I was on international television on a show called the Dr. Nandy show. I was featured in the New York times, you know, and then many, you know, local news, uh, news stations and newspapers here in Oregon. And then something really exciting happened. I was contacted by the pride organ. I'm sorry. Yeah. The pride organization that was, did something in collaboration with Facebook And it was called Authentically Us. And it was a feature, uh, a virtual reality short documentary that was built for those, you know, virtual reality headsets. And so, you know, that was really kind of uh, one of the larger things that I've done and, you know, went down and, and... did some talks with Facebook, and that was that was a really exciting time too. So if any of you have virtual reality headsets out there, you can look it up and look it up and watch it. And you can watch it even if you don't have a virtual reality headset. I'm pretty sure it's available on Vimeo or YouTube.
0: Yeah, it's called "She Flies by Her Own Wings," which actually happens to be also the Oregon motto, which is so uh, perfectly yeah. sums this up. I, I I love it. I haven't watched it yet. I'll be honest, but I am certainly it's going to be something I I watch because I think this is really fascinating. What was that process like for you, the filming of this documentary and being so vulnerable?
1: You know, I have found that my greatest strength is my vulnerability. When I started doing my speaking originally, I really hid um, a lot of the hard stuff. And I really even hid the fact, tried in, in a little bit of a way, tried to hide the fact that I was transgender and just tried to present more as a cisgender woman. And I, and then I kind of had this epiphany one day, I'm like, I'm not serving anybody with this. And if I'm gonna do this right, I need to bare my soul on this. And so slowly and surely, I started creating different speeches and different training tracks where I, I just let it out there. And I let folks know how difficult it was and what I struggled with. Not so much so that they could, you know, empathize with me, but that so that they could empathize with the community as a whole. You know, for the for the one person that they may have met or seen on TV who they might have judged a certain way, maybe now they'll look at them in a different light. So when you say um, vulnerability, that's a hundred percent on point. That's and that's what I realize what's needed to really get out there and get this work done.
0: It's incredible. I. I'm I'm a huge fan and I think what you're doing is is important when you're talking to businesses that bring you in to teach diversity and inclusion what's that initial conversation like and and how successful are they once you leave uh and you're done with your engagement with them
1: that that's a great question so initially when I sit down with an organization I sit down with leadership and I say what's the environment here you know who am I going to talk to? Because I've gone to uh, do talks where, you know, it's a room full of, you know, older white conservative men. And I, I know that this is a very different audience mm-hmm. than say, when I go to speak to a bunch of, you know, 20 you know, or 20 and 30 somethings that are, are living on the West coast, progressive or typically liberal minded. And, and so I get a feel for what they need and how I can best serve them, and then we put together a plan from there. Whether that's, you know, a speech to inspire, a training track, all of it combined, or you know, maybe just small group conversations to really get things rolling. Um, and then we do that and we execute it. And I always offer, um, you know, there's complimentary follow-ups. I, you all, you asked a really great question when you said, "How do you make sure that?" The work is still getting done once I leave, and you know, unless unless the business decides to retain me on afterwards, that's something that I don't have a lot of control over. So, I do try to leave them with the best tools I can, so that they can help carrying on this work. I can have conversations with management about what to do when things go awry and how to best you know remedy those situations. And and then if a you know a transgender or a queer non-binary person comes into their to their workspace, how to best create and accepting and affirming workplace. So at the, sometimes the best thing I can do is give them, leave them the tools they need to do the work, and then hopefully inspire them to continue on once I've, I've gone on.
0: Yeah. And then, and then how, how, what's the feedback been like from, say, you know, employees, individual contributors about the the progress they're making? Do you, do you get any of that feedback from them?
1: unfortunately i haven't had a lot of organizations do the work after i've left unless they have a dedicated um, the reason they bring me in as a consultant is because they don't have somebody on staff to do this work already so the follow-up is um, that there's no one there to do it i'll be honest with you and unless i'm there to do it it only comes up if there's another problem and so what i will say is i haven't had any callbacks as far as hey we're still struggling can you come back um, I think that the setup that we have here allows for them, if they're really willing to, and I, you know, if they're really willing to, then I don't need to come back. You know, there's no reason that I have to w- be the one to make sure that they have, you know, facilities for all of their employees to safely use the restroom. That's something that they can easily do themselves. You know, I don't have to. I don't have to be the one to make sure that if I've helped them write their transgender inclusion policy to make sure that they're following it. You know, I don't have to be the enforcer there. But what I can do is help them write it in a way that that makes sense and is, is plain language so that, you know, any manager or any employee can read it and say, okay, this is pretty clear. This is how I'll have to behave or, you know, it's a talk with the boss or a trip to HR or what have you. So, you know, I think it's it's not this thing that, uh, you know, my experience and my wisdom is really valuable in changing the minds, helping set up the infrastructure, creating those, those policies, and if needed, performing follow-up you know, conversations with folks. But for the most part, once it's built, and if the management really believes in it, and really, if it matters to them, then it'll work, because they'll enforce it, and they'll, they'll follow the guidelines which they wrote. And if they don't believe in it, you know, not a lot I can do there.
0: Right. Because they're you're, not going to
1: call me back and tell me. Obviously.
0: Yeah. I mean, you're, you're literally on the front lines of this change in different companies. Being so close to that, how optimistic are you that th- this change is going to keep happening in some of the larger businesses? Do you think this is just inevitably, it's going to be a safe space for, for all? Or is just there just a lot more work to be done? I mean, I'm sure I know the quest, the answer to this, but I'm very curious
1: as far as and as I said before, it's it's very dependent upon each organization and leadership and and culture within. But what I will say, as far as the larger organizations I've worked with, I'm incredibly optimistic and in fact, maybe even more than optimistic as I'm impressed. There are some organizations out there that mean this um, and are taking and are not just doing a one-off training. They This is part of their continuing education program. And so when I see organizations doing that and when I see organizations bringing in consultants and speakers and panels and also having making time for their employees to have these conversations perhaps in, in small groups so that they can work through, you know, what it takes to get this work done, I've been – I've been very inspired and impressed with what the work that's being done at the larger organization levels, you know, mid-level and yeah. smaller organizations, you know, much more dependent upon, you know, that company culture, but, and, and leadership, but the big yeah. guys seem to get it, I guess is what I'm that's saying. Great. That's yeah. great.
0: I'm glad to hear it. Uh, I asked this of all my guests, I'm really curious what your answer will be. Every founder has that I fucked this up pretty bad and I'm not going to do that again. What is the one thing you think you've done where it was pretty critical and it was a mistake and you're not going to make that mistake again?
1: Yeah, so I think the biggest mistake that I've ever made, and (laughs) I'm going through all of them right now in my head. (laughs) is uh, For most founders, it's hard to pick just one, right? So (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I think the biggest mistake that I had made was going in to do a presentation where I wasn't 100%. Because of the level of vulnerability and a personal emotion that I have behind this. And of course, there's anger and frustration and pain and sadness. I, you know, As as a professional going into a workspace, I need to take take those and, and put those away for the moment because today isn't about me. Today is about education. Today is about the folks in the audience, the people here who, who are here to learn. And I, there was one presentation I did, and luckily it was with a relatively small group, but I went in, and I was exhausted, and I wasn't feeling well and i you know I kind of had that moment where a question was asked uh, a few questions in a row by a member of the audience who just didn't like this idea that uh, of transgender people being out there and open and and typically, I'm really very patient, and that day I just hadn't slept well and hadn't, hadn't had a good breakfast what you know all of these things, and I just kind of got a little snippy and I didn't do anything terrible, but I kind of called them out and that I think was a mistake hmm. because who did that serve? You know, as I look right. back on that and I said, and I called them out on this and I said, I basically said you need to stop thinking about yourself so much and not in those words, but it, and I looked back and I was like, who was I serving there? I certainly didn't hmm. serve my audience, I certainly didn't serve this person. In fact, I might've set them back a step or two. So I think that that was understanding that I need to go in there a hundred percent ready to do this, you know, full of empathy, mindful of empathy for these people that, that you know want to know. They just don't know. They're not stupid. They're just ignorant and they don't want to be ignorant anymore. So that was my big one. Uh, And uh, so now I'm, I'm very diligent about making sure that before I go in to do this work, that I'm ready to do it.
0: It's a great, uh, it's a great lesson.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, you've been through this journey, this incredible journey. What's the one thing that if you could go back to your, your younger, your younger self and say, Hey, you're going to do all this incredible work, make sure you do this. What's that one thing you would have told your younger self?
1: I think that all people in my community, the LGBTQ community, probably wish that they had came out earlier. I certainly know that I spent a good portion of my life lying to myself, uh, being afraid of the truth, and and, you know, and hiding from it. And that also had a pretty you know pretty large impact on you know people that I loved at the time, including a relationship uh, with someone that I cared for very deeply, and ended up. Not intentionally lying to, I was lying to myself at the time, saying this is not who I want to be, this is not who I am, and so uh, I ended up engaging in a long-term relationship with someone. I really broke their heart, and so Mm. you know that's something that I have a great deal of regret around.
0: Uh,
1: It's it's a tough one, you know. We come out when we're ready, and the fact that I wasn't ready, I just perhaps I wish I had been ready sooner. Yeah, but you know. I don't know that I if it would have made my life better, per se, because then I wouldn't be here today where I am and I'm living an incredible, happy and purposeful and full life. So it's interesting. It's an interesting question.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely reflective. Uh,
1: you know, yeah. what do you think? Uh, what
0: do you think for for your company? Where, where do you hope it goes in the next five to ten years?
1: I hope that we continue to grow and I hope to not only continue the work that I'm doing around uh, you know, LGBTQ equality in the workplace, but I really hope to find someone that I can collaborate with so that we can start integrating uh, racial equality And because that is not something that I am qualified or even if I was qualified that I may- maybe even shouldn't be doing. I think that there's a certain, and this is not in all cases and I don't want to speak broadly here. But I think for the most part, people should have a lived experience of what they're talking about. You know, you can read a million books about um, racism. And if you're a white person, you'll never know what it is to experience racism. So I really hope to partner and expand in that way. And then just continue this great work we're doing and continue to grow. On the other fronts, and then you know, obviously, as I said before, I, I would like to expand in other areas, like you know, folks living with different abilities, and and all of those marginalized groups is is kind of my dream for the business. Yeah, it's amazing. Shan-
0: yeah. yeah, Shannon, I I love your story, and I I really appreciate you taking the time to to speak with me today. It's uh it's been uh, just a, an a absolute honor to sit here and and listen to your story. Where where can where can people find you?
1: Uh, well, if you're looking for United Equality Consulting, the best place is to uh, look me up on my website, unitedequalityconsulting.com, or you can just email me. It's Shannon at unitedequalityconsulting.com. And if, uh, if there's anybody out there listening that wants to get involved with the human rights campaign, campaign please uh, feel free to reach out to me at shannon at hrcportland.org.
0: I love it. Shannon, thank you so much for coming on the program. I would love to have you on again and, and, uh, and track your progress.
1: Josh, it was a pleasure being here. I want to thank you for having me.
0: Anytime. You've been listening to the Veteran Founder Podcast right here on the Startup Radio Network. Tune in every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific. Listen, learn, get shit done. See you guys next week.
1: You're listening to the Startup Radio Network. Listen, learn, launch. 10% of our gross revenue goes directly to women entrepreneurs in developing countries around the world through Kiva's microfinance program.